Welcome to event 50, Owen Shears in the Community Hall. Uh, I'd like to thank the Arts Council of England as the main funders for the festival, and also Mrs. Carolyn Beavis, who is the sponsor for this particular event. We have two guests, one that I think everybody who attends the festival knows well, uh, Chloe, our artistic director for the festival, and Owen Shears. And I looked on Owen's uh, biog to talk about him. He has written huge numbers of books, many of which are for sale at the back, and there will be a signing at the end, so please stay still, so we can get down there without being killed in the stampede. And I noticed on one of the things on the list of many of the lists that he's done, here's a list of his attributes. He's been a writer of novels, novellas, a poet, a journalist, an actor, a presenter, and a playwright. <laughs> can't think many else things left for him to do, really. It makes me feel very inadequate. Anyway, I know we'll enjoy. Owen's going to read for a while. Chloe will discuss and talk questions with him. And then there'll be an opportunity with you, the audience, to also ask questions. And then there'll be some final readings. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, John. And... Um, uh, thank you very much to all of you for being here. It's um, fantastic to be back. We were just working out. I was last here 17 years ago. Um, so I... I know. I know. <laughs> so I have, I have three uh, lovely um, uh, pots that say a Lebri Poetry Festival. Um, um, so we're going to be talking about my two uh, most recent books, which actually both started their lives as uh, film poems on the BBC. Um, and the first one that I'll be uh, reading from is called The Green Hollow, uh, which was a piece that I wrote to mark the 50th anniversary of the Aberfan disaster um, in 1966. I'm sure that most of you are familiar with that, but in case you're not, uh, it was um, an awful episode where um, a slag heap uh, collapsed onto the village of, of Aberfan and specifically over the primary school, uh, killing 144 people and 116 children. Um, so as you can imagine, when the BBC approached me and asked me to write something to mark this anniversary, so there, was, there wasn't anything prescriptive about what should be written, um, I didn't say yes straight away. I think especially if you're from Wales, but I think if you're a writer from anywhere, it's a kind of subject which I think it is only right to think a lot about before you um, approach. Um, in the end, I, I did say yes, and maybe we'll talk about why later. Um, and I realised quite early on that um, I wanted poetry to play um, a central part in whatever I wrote, and I wanted this to, as much as possible, to be a poem in the voice of Abba Van, to really be Abba Van's poem much more than mine. And so the whole process started with me doing around seven months of interviews and conversations with uh, survivors and rescuers um, and children who had been in the school. Um, and it's those voices... It, it was very much that seven months of listening that inform the Green Hollow, which uh, tells the story um, of uh, what happened through a series of uh, dramatic monologues and composite characters. Um, and I'm just going to read to you a few extracts from the Green Hollow. Um, the structure of the book is very much uh, before, then uh, uh, during the actual um, um, events of that day in October, and then afterwards... Uh, now in 2016. 
And I think very early on, one of the things I became fascinated by was how people spoke about what Aberfan was before this disaster happened. Because, of course, we now know it through the disaster. The disaster occupies the place. But that's not how it's known by the people who have always lived there. And the picture that started to appear was of this extraordinary place of full employment, you know, two cinemas, um, incredibly culturally vibrant, you know, lots of drama clubs and bands. And, and people spoke about it with such warmth as an incredible place to be, which was really, for me, um, a ran counter to all of those grainy black and white images I've seen of what looked like you know, very downtrodden um, in miners' families. And of course, the work was hard, it was dangerous, but this was undeniably, this was a place with an extraordinary sense of community and was in many ways self-sustainable. Um, but that led me thinking to even further back, um, why had mining even come to these beautiful valleys? What was that deeper story? So this first extract tells part of that story and it opens in the voice of um, a farm woman um, called Edna and she's speaking in 1966. Uh, and then it's taken up by Dai, who is uh, one of the miners. So start off with Edna. Wasn't always like this, of course. Summer grazing, that's what brought the first people here. Good land, sheltered spot, fed by six streams at least. It's all still here, in a way, in the names, the streets. Havod Tanglois, the summer place of Tanglois. Bryn Golai, the hill of light. Pant glass, the green hollow, and still is, I suppose, though with kids now, not grass. And Abba Van, of course, the mouth of the van, the biggest of those streams feeding the taff. Was the steam coal what changed all that? And John Nixon, he's still here too, other side of the taff. Nixonville, it's called, though far as I can see, whole places that man's. I mean, was him who started the pit, and the pit what made Abba Van. From up north he was. Newcastle way, saw Merthyr coal burned on the Thames one day and couldn't believe it. No smoke in the coal, never seen that before. So he came down here looking for more. Went to Mrs Thomas, he did, up at the Grieg. There she was, sitting in a hut at the mouth of the shaft, a basket of head by a head for the cash, with girls sorting by hand outside. A hundred and fifty tonnes a day she was selling. But no more. That's what she told Nixon. She reckoned we'd taken too much already out from under the valley's floor. But Nixon, well, he was modern. Didn't understand the words too much. So he sunk his own, the deepest so far, then worked his way south from navigation to deep Dufferin to here, Merthyr Vale. He'd proved it, see, that ten hours of fire from Aberdeer was worth twelve at least from the time. By the time I left school, there seemed no question. The war was over and my father, well, he was suffering from dust, so I went down. Twenty years next month. Mrs Thomas would turn, I bet, to think we're still digging it out. Generations down that pit. Not my boys, though. I'm working down there, so they won't. Will's heading for an apprentice at JJ's garage, and well, according to some, he's got a chance in the ring. And Thomas Bach, he's good with his hands too, in a different way. Only nine, but plays the piano with both of them. <laughs> so that's Di, who we meet early on. Um, and I should say that the whole piece opens with his son, Thomas, um, at dawn. Uh, 
on that October day in 1966. This next extract is from the middle section, which is the um, events of that day itself. And I think quite early on, I realized I wanted the uh, disaster itself to be told through the voices of um, outsiders, really, the rescuers, the people who got involved um, in uh, coming to Aberfan, because in many ways, that's how the disaster has been shaped. From the very, very beginning, it was told by us, the people looking in. Uh, and so this opens with Gwyneth, who is um, the mayor's uh, secretary in Merthyr. Uh, and then we move to Dave, who is um, a young bank clerk, so 21, 22. And we finish with Sam, who was the very first journalist. He just happened to be up there that day, and he was the very first journalist onto the scene. And I mentioned that uh, throughout this book, these are uh, composite characters, which is true, except for this middle section, where the experiences run much, much closer in their contours to the real experience. And so I guess my role as a writer was more about shaping that language and heightening the language. But, but what happens is absolutely owned and was told to me uh, uh, by these people. And um, when Dave speaks, he reports a brief conversation between a journalist and a miner. And that miner is Di, who we've just heard from earlier. So starting with Gwyneth. Around... Eleven, we assembled in the chamber to be informed of the plans. We're setting up mortuaries, they said, wherever we can. We were stunned, numb, but of course had to carry on. There was so much to be done. At around four, the women as well as the men were asked to go to Abavan. Once there, we gathered in a hall, unsure what would happen. But then John Beale, the director of education, he came in, school registers under his arm. He wanted to account for the children, so began to read out their names. But their sound on the air, what it conjured, was too much for him. He broke down. And anyway, nobody knew who had survived and who had not. So each of the women was given a street and told to go down it from door to door, asking each family a single question against the grain of natural law. I was 22. Each time I knocked, I prayed the answer would be, yes, he's here, or yes, she's asleep upstairs, but of course, all too often, it wasn't. I'd write down the name or the names, the ages, seven, eight, or nine. We'd talk if they wanted. Then they'd close their door softly, the hand of a husband or wife on their shoulder. And I'd carry on with my list of numbers, names, and ages, willing for it not to grow any longer. As the news filtered into the world, so the world filtered back to us. Factories emptied across Wales. Steel walkers from Port Talbot, Hoover down in Merthyr, schoolboys from a valley over, and individuals too, a farmer from Brecon, an accountant from Cardiff, and many others from further. And of course, the TV crews, the journalists, first from Wales, then the UK, then France, Germany, all over. They set up at the Mac, filmed us working, the slide, the tips, the chimneys still smoking through the black. I heard one reporter ask a miner, they say you'll dig into the night, is that true? My boy's in there somewhere, I'll dig all night if I have to. At some point, the NCB rescue teams came, like the cavalry they were, 
in their yellow jackets and hats, then the army digging trenches, clearing stormwater, from all over the country, feather pumps and tenders. No one else would be pulled out alive, not from the houses nor the school, but still all you could hear was the sound of digging tools and occasionally quiet crying because now there was other work to do, supporting the parents of Bethania Chapel, small bodies under blankets on every pew, as they went in to identify their children, sometimes by face, but often by just a piece of cloth, a pair of shoes. Somehow, throughout it all, the workers were fed, watered, soup and bread from the Salvation Army, the Civil Defense, even at one point, a plate of wedding cake. But then that's what happens, isn't it? The world ruptures and we offer what we can. And that's what happened that night to a woman and a man. People gave their strength, their sympathy, offered up for Abavan. When the day started fading, they brought in arc lights powered by canisters of gas. Uh, towers were erected from which they shone across that whole expanse of ruin and slurry and black. Everyone was covered in muck, me included. I'd worn my best suit to go and see John Beale, but now you'd have thought I'd spent the day down the pit. But we hadn't. It had come to us. Everyone knew that now. And when it did, like some heartless Pied Piper, it harvested the best of that town. It was time for me to go. The dusk was giving to night. I wanted to see my wife. The Merthyr to Cardiff line had been cut, so I caught a bus. I was the only one on it, and like that, held in the brightness of its upper deck, I travelled home alone through the darkness, being sick at my feet as it went. From what? I can't say. Exhaustion, sadness, who knows? The body has its ways of telling when we've had too much. But as the bus sailed on down that dark valley, with me, a dirty grain in its light, even with my eyes closed, being sick, I couldn't help seeing one specific sight. The curtains of a house in a short, terraced street I'd passed earlier that day. They were closed. Which in Wales, not at night, means only one thing. A house where the seeds of death have been sown. I walked on. But as I did, I looked down the rest of that row, which is when I saw the curtains. They were drawn in every window. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. So, um, I mean, both... Um, Green Hollow and Providal people, I must say, um, just so, um, they're very emotional to read. I was, I must, I want, I'm going to confess that actually I was in tears with both of, reading both of them, uh, wonderful um, books. I want to ask them, what, uh, what made you decide that you could write Green Hollow, or having been asked, you know, to do that? Yeah, um, yeah, because like I said, for a long time, I really, I really backed off it, you, you know, something of sacrosanct a subject, and I was aware that you know the danger of emotional exploitation is so high for a writer with something like that as well. And I question whether it was my story to tell. But I sort of answered that element by um, deciding that I'd go back to the same technique that I'd used for an earlier piece called Pink Mist, where I'd interviewed recently wounded service veterans. Um, and so I was comfortable that I could hopefully create something 
from the voices of Abba Van. But really what, what tipped it for me was, and I think that this has to be the case with anything historical, I was asking myself, what is the contemporary resonance? What is the urgency and the pressure to speak now? And when I kind of shifted the story and I saw it from a different angle as a, the story of what can happen when a community is allowed to be run by a corporation, suddenly mm. this felt a lot more pressing. We'd recently had Grenville. It's interesting how often Aberman and Grenville mm. at Tower are mentioned in the same breath. And so I thought, this still has so much to say. And there was something else as well, that when I went up and I spoke to people and, and was careful about saying when I spoke to the community, because I did, but as we know, there are many communities within communities and some mm. people in Aberfan still would rather not talk at all. Mm. But it was clear that they did want to mark the 50th anniversary and not only mark it, they wanted to in some way kind of embrace it mm. in all of its awfulness and also the positive elements in terms of what happens when a community pulls together after that. Um, but they wanted it to be some kind of a letting go as well. So I, I think they felt this isn't going to happen for the 60th anniversary. You know, this is probably the last time. And so that sort of gave me a greater sense that this was something to contribute to, that people were trying to find a way to create a shape yeah. for something that could resonate, be held and passed on. Yeah, yeah. And was there a showing, or how did, did people get a chance to see it? Did, how did you do, launch it? In yeah, no, I mean, of course, that was um, a perennial question all the way through. And it, it was very different to other projects, you know, because I think in any other scenario, I don't think I would ever say to people that, you know, you have an editorial mm. you know, say on this because mm. I'm the writer and, you know, and that's my job. But, but this was different, and I did find myself saying to people, look, you know, when I show you the script, if there's something that you really object to, we can talk about it, maybe there's a way around it, but if it has to go, it can go. So that's what we did. We kept in touch with everyone I spoke to. Um, they were all sent the script. Um, from early on, though, it, 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 it's a fascinating sort of dialogue between form and subject because the form was a great release for people. When I explained that these would be composite characters, mm. so, in, so your individual story will be feeding a broader narrative, and we'll be making it more nuanced, and hopefully for you, more true. That really helped people open up, mm. you know, mm. because John wasn't going to have what John said, yeah. you know, on camera. Yeah. Um, so that, that kind of process continued when I sent them the script. Um, probably the hardest things for me, there's an extraordinary group in Aberfan uh, called the Young Wives Club, which was formed by uh, mothers who lost children. Um, just before I met them, average age of... 75, 80, they just <laughs> voted to remove the word young from their title. Um, and I've got to say, I was incredibly nervous about, about meeting them, of course. Um, they are, I think, the most uh, life-affirming, um, sort of joyous group of people I've ever met, which is an extraordinary, not something I was expecting to say. But they're also, you know, they also don't take any prisoners. And they said, no, no, don't send us the script. Come and read it to us. Oh, right. <laughs> And I th thought, actually, yeah, I mean, if I'm going to stand by this, that's what I have to do. And, and I'll be honest, I was in pieces. <laughs> they were incredibly strong. But that was important. And then, yes, the first screening mm. happened in Aberfan, in the library. Uh, and, you know, I was sort of you know, curled in a ball in a corner because, you know, you, you, you have that ongoing anxiety about, mm. about sort of exploitation. But, um, but it turned out to be a strangely wonderful 
event. Um, a lot of people said it wasn't uncomfortable and a difficult watch. But what was interesting is one of the greatest fears was that it was going to be euphemistic. Mm. And I think especially because people had realised that there was going to be poetry. And, oh, you know, poetry means that things get a bit euphemistic. And of course, as you all know, it's the exact opposite. And so it was good to hear that, that they said that, that we really appreciated that it was unflinching. Mm. But the other thing, hopefully, that poetry gives anything is mm. that however awful the subject matter, it is about creating something beauty, mm. uh, uh, beautiful. And yeah. the concept of... I became very interested in the concept of beauty as tribute, mm. not as, guild, as gilding, not as euphemism. And also, amazing things came out of that screening in that people spoke to their grandchildren and sometimes their grandchildren didn't even know that they had family involved. Oh, really? So mm. it was a, a good example, I think, hopefully, of how stories within a community can allow sort of greater... Your communication. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the language is very heightened in it, and it is um, a film poem. Mm. And in the book, too, it reads, you've got lots of, you use form, you know, you've got lots of rhyme in there, half rhyme, and that gives it a really amazing intensity, I think, as a reader. Mm. Um, but it is um, a particular, it's got a long history, hasn't it? The long poem, and then yeah. the verse play, which, um, so can you talk a bit about that, how you place yourself in that history of yeah, well, I mean, God. <laughs> or something. I don't think I'm going to place myself in history. That sounds a yeah. bit uh, presumptuous. But um, <laughs> no, but I had become fascinated with this because, like I said, I sort of stumbled upon this form when I wrote Pink Mist, which interestingly was uh, uh, written for radio. So these have all, you know, begun it very much in uh, a performative you know, media. Um, but of course, writing for radio is writing for the ear, mm. and I think it was that that allowed me to really throw myself into this experimentation with voice mm. and this grafting of my voice with other voices the concept of a writer as a conduit for the voices of others. Um, and, but aside from radio, I was amazed at the nervousness I met everywhere else with this form. Um, so Favour Poetry turned down Pink Mist. Right. Um, Bristol Old Vic, it, it was set in Bristol. I had to knock on their door for three years. And mm. it was interesting because what I was coming across was people were worried that poetry was going to make something obscure. It was going to make it niche. It was going you know, to make it inaccessible. Mm. Um, I was going to tear my hair out going, the very foundations of our literary heritage are verse drama. You know, there was a bloke called Shakespeare who did it really well. <laughs> I'm not saying that these are Shakespeare, but, but you know. Yeah, um, no, it's so true, though. I did become interested in what we'd lost there. Now, obviously, we have had people like Tony Harrison who's done extraordinary work on film, you know, mm. Glyn Maxwell with verse dramas. Um, you know, T.S. Eliot, yeah. you know, the cocktail party. Maybe there's a, a link there between Faber's nervousness, I don't know. But, um, you know, and this isn't strict verse, and, you know, I was saying to you, I want these pieces to be rhythmically driven because mm. I think, especially if your vocabulary pool might be constrained because you're writing through characters, then you can use rhythm to excavate emotion yeah. rather than just language. And you do, when it works, you hopefully create this subterranean sort of channel of communication, which I think does a lot of the emotive work. But yeah, I was interested and in that there was real sort of scepticism about the form. What I think is fascinating, even since Pink Mist was published over the last four or five years, that has broken down because, mm. you know, a performance poetry and, and yeah. you know, poetry on the page, mm. there's a much greater coming together in a really positive way, I think. Yeah. So now we're, we're entering a place where we have a lot more poets entering that theatrical mm. space, which I think is great. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I mean, the, the film, when you see that, is different to the books. Yeah. So they are... So the, the books, um, the film poems are an edited version of the books, yeah. are they, in some ways? Yes. Yeah. I mean, working with 
you know, TV, on the one hand, you feel incredibly blessed that we have a broadcaster that will actually commission film poems. Not many others will do that. But it, it is always a compromise, and mm. it's always going to be full of frustration. And, you know, because unlike in a book or a play even, someone is saying this has to be 58 minutes long, you know. <laughs> um, and so although the filmmaker I work with, Pitt Broughton, allows me essentially to write my book and then she adapts. Um, and yeah, it's a completely different experience. And there's a further level of distillation because it's then distilled to actors who, mm. and it's interesting talking to actors because they're not playing characters. They are literally being vessels for these voices and these stories. Mm. But they really enjoy that. Mm. But yeah, it's a very different experience. So these are the fuller, are, are the fuller works. Mm. And oddly, of course, where pieces like this have the longer life because TV is still incredibly ephemeral. You know, it comes and it passes. So even though I was writing for TV, the longer view was always towards these books being the more permanent form. And in, we're going to hear from to, to provide all people, and, but I was interested that um, you've got uh, lots of uh, different voices speaking and obviously hours and hours of research and, and listening. But there is one, there's a sort of a main narrative that goes through it, which is this young couple uh, having their baby, and then mm. the, the woman later reappears in that. And I wondered um, if you could talk a bit about how it came about that you had that uh, main story in some ways coming through it. Yeah, 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 and of course. I mean, I think it was something that I discovered, you know, because these, these are very much hybrid forms, you know, so you... you you find yourself jumping between the forms within the form. And it was a dramatic necessity that, yes, I want to create something choral mm. and this montage of voices. Mm. And I'm interested in you know, uh, creating the choral from individual experience. Um, but actually, as, uh, as viewers, as readers, as listeners, we want to attach mm. to a character. We want to follow an emotional mm. arc. Um, and so in both of those, so as you heard, you know, Di and his family become mm. that through line mm. in the Green Hollow, and it, it's the young family in um, to provide all people that provide that. But the other reason they're there is that, you know, so how to provide all people came about was that the Green Hollow happened, the BBC were very pleased with it, and I kind of jumped on that opportunity and I said, I know, you know, it's the 70th anniversary of the NHS, you know, let me at it. Uh, I said, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, <laughs> I was like, it'll be great. Um, and I really didn't, because they said yes, and then I sat down, and I, then I realised that both Pink Mist and The Green Hollow had been about events, so they could have that age-old structure of before, during, and after. To provide all people is about the birth and the creation of an idea, this extraordinarily double-scaled idea, the NHS, that is on a level of a society but yet we all experience at the most intimate level of the bodies and the minds of ourselves and those that we love. And I say, oh God, how do I, how do, I do this? And I think it, 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 it's a very different work because of that. And then I realised I wanted to tell the story of the NHS, birth, uh, life, and then death, question mark, discuss. Um, <laughs> Boris, anyway. Um, <laughs> Trump, anyway. Um, <laughs> Well, actually, just an aside, every, I did 75 hours of interviews. Everyone I spoke to, my last question to them was, will the NHS exist as we understand it, being true to its core principles in 10, 15 years? And it was exactly split 50-50, with 50% of people saying, no, 50 saying, I, I hope so. 
Um, but in the end, I realised I wanted to try and tell the story of the idea alongside intimate human stories. Yeah. So the birth of the NHS alongside a real difficult birth and life, and then the story of palliative care mm. and what's going to happen to this idea. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of how that came about. And, and I suppose I should say, I, I don't always say this, but you know, Lebri's a special festival, I feel. <laughs> no, um, and also, um, just before I wrote this, our, I still get quite moved by this, um, our second daughter was born uh, two months prematurely, mm. um, and the NHS saved her life. Um, mm. And then my wife was very ill, and they saved her life. Mm. And for a long time, I was trying not to write about that. I said, you know, it, this is not about me, it's not about the personal. But then I realised this idea of the double scaling. And mm. I said, actually, it was like a vacuum pulling me in. I had to write about it. Mm. So that was an, another reason why I wanted that there. It was my, you know, it was sort of my personal thanks, my personal tribute to the NHS. That's right. Mm. And I mean, it comes out very clearly in that book that the... Um, you know, there's a real uh, passion in it about the fragility of this uh, amazing, you know, community of care created by the government. And, mm. you know, and uh, I sort of thought maybe having you having had, I knew you'd had children yourself, that that sort of made you almost, you know, perhaps that's partly what makes you so worried about the future for the NHS and, uh, you know, I mean, and politics, you know, and talking about government. It used to be very unfashionable in poetry, but I yeah. think these days you know, the times are different, aren't they? And we have to... I think they are. And, and it's interesting, you know, we were talking earlier, I think Auden once said, you know, that one of the worst things that can happen for a young poet is that they're taken up by a cause, you know. <laughs> and you understand that. And he also said um, another time, I don't know why I'm quoting Auden so much, but he seemed to be quite... Well, because I suppose, actually, he was talking about his big uh, political poem, Spain, and how he felt about that afterwards. And he said, you know, if a young poet says, I've got things I want to say they're probably not going to be a poet. If they're interested in hanging around language, interested in words, then they will. So I understand that, and that the risk of the didactic finger preaching from the page is a very real risk. But we live in extraordinary times, mm. and I'm not saying that writers have to or they should, but I think more and more writers are feeling that it's part of the challenge. How do you negotiate this? How do you engage with uh, uh, contemporary urgent politics and still create, you know, great yeah. works of art. Now, yeah. you know, I was in here earlier listening to Ali Smith, and she's doing that with that seasonal quartet. It's mm. a great, mm. it's a great example. Um, so, and it was also, I think, at times it was a, a, a choice I made. I think, you know, the choices we face with the NHS are so urgent, and and they go to the core of who who we will be as a nation. That's what fascinates me is the the question that Anarin Bevan and that at the government really put to Britain was, who do we want to be? Mm. What kind of people do we want to be? Mm. And we're at that point in history again. So I think there are times when I realise that to the detriment of the poetry, this becomes more of an urgent a political piece. But, um, but it is a fascinating question. I mean, you know, I was saying again earlier, every project that I'm working on now, from opera to to TV drama, to the next novel, is about the climate and the mm -hmm. ecological crisis because it's happening on our watch. It's the existential issue of our age. Mm. And actually, the story of climate change is partly the story of the failure of narrative on the level of a species. Um, and some, some parts of that species wanting to stop certain stories. So I think, actually, that writers, artists have a, have a real role to play in it. But it's fraught with difficulty, but that's no reason not to... 
yeah. not to get involved. Yeah. Mm. Um, so we've got um, a bit of a chance now to open up to questions um, from the audience. So hopefully um, people will want uh, to speak up. So if you'd like to ask a question, just raise your hands. We've got roving mics, and we'd love to hear from you. We want to hear what you have to say. I have plenty of other questions, so you don't need to worry, but it'd be nice to hear. And I'll talk all day, so you should be very careful. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. We've got a question here. Uh, uh, sorry, a rather personal question, but which project or which piece of work are you most proud of? Be it opera, drama, poetry? Or Gosh, um... No, it's a really interesting question, actually. Uh, I think that you know, part of the process of writing, so much of writing is difficult. It is, it's difficult. Um, I know we've got some students in. It's also a brilliant thing to do. You must do it. But <laughs> it's brilliant because it is difficult. Um, and so I think quite often you have to kind of be in love with what you're working on at the moment. Because if you're not in love with it and you don't feel very proud of it and you feel important, it's so easy to let it fall away or for you to fall away from it. So it's quite often what's going on at the moment, um, and I'm, I'm working on a 90-minute BBC drama about uh, an episode that became known as Climate Gate. Some of you might remember it. It happened 10 years ago. Now, uh, uh, looking at it from a period of 10 years, it's extraordinary how prescient it was in that the University of East Anglia had their emails hacked, their climate research unit, and it was one of the first major international examples of, of fake news and extracts were released to make it look as though climate science was all cooked up. And, of course, it wasn't, but the effect upon public opinion was incredibly powerful. It had a huge effect upon Donald Trump. Um, and it's interesting, though, how, how projects grow out of each other because the people at the heart of that, the scientists, the people in the university, their families, I mean, people who tried to take their own lives over what was happening, um, approached me, and they'd seen the film about the NHS, and they said, we've never told our story from the eye of the storm. And that's what I'm trying to do. And it's incredibly difficult. And I, and I, I might fail. So if that works, if, if I manage to pull it off, I'll be very proud of that. Um, a shorter answer is actually probably it's um, a book called The Dust Diaries, which I wrote a long, long time ago. Um, again, a strange kind of hybrid work, part travel, part nonfiction, part novel. Um, about and set in Zimbabwe. And, and, and that's because I was very young when I wrote it. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, although it's not obviously a, a rites of passage book, actually it kind of was for me. And I hope this isn't too sad a place to end, but sometimes I look at it and I think, I don't think I'm ever going to have the energy to write something like that again. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm quite, I'm quite proud of that as well. Yeah, I don't believe that at all. And in fact, what you do amazingly well is kind of hold these stories told, you know, that people have told you and these things, and then your own sort of passions and concerns and this kind of mm. real tension. And that's what seems to make these books so powerful to read. I really do believe that. We've got another question down here. You talked about politics um, and the role of the poet a few minutes ago. Um, how do you think um, you as a writer can take a part in bringing people of opposing directions together? It's a nice small question. Thank you. <laughs> Considering both of our future possible prime ministers can't answer that. Um, but, you know, 
it's an integral question. It, it, it's absolutely vital. Um, and, you know, and I'm not going to come up with any answer here, but I do have something to say on that, in that when I was researching the birth of the NHS, what I became fascinated in, and of course we must remember, I talk about um, Niren Bevan and how important his personal political hinterland, his experience of the mining valleys where they trialled this kind of a, a health system were important. But we must remember it was a cross-party consensus. This was something that grew through Britain from after the First World War onwards. But what I came to realise when I was researching the speeches of Bevan and the speeches of people even opposing him was the level of the political discourse was nuanced. It was intelligent. It was sometimes lyrical. And what you realise is that you need that kind of a linguistic environment for complex, beautiful ideas to happen. And what I worry about is that the discourse is becoming so crude and so base and so polarised that the ideas that come out of it are as well. So I guess I would say this as a writer. I would look at language. I think the media has a huge responsibility to play, if you look recently. You know, and, and I think a lot of our, our papers and media have been terribly irresponsible with, because it's partly, I'd say, their role to be the, the custodians of the shared conversation. And so we need to find a way to have more respectful and more nuanced conversations. And we need to learn to listen twice as more than we speak, really. I mean, all of these projects... Thank you. Thank you. But, but, I mean, all of these projects began with listening, you know, and, and, and it feels as though the ability to listen has been lost. And I know that this has come at a time with uh, technology, so that, you know, um, opinions become facts. And, and, but I think that's what I would look at, is how do we talk about it? You know, because ideas are only ever going to be the product of language and imagination, and the base of that gets, so do they. Right. And, and also, you do so much work with schools and young people, which I think is brilliant, because, I mean, obviously, that's the hope. They're all going to be voting very soon. Yeah. And because of the sort of work you do, I've, I've heard of them being performed in universities. There's a real mm. travel that these works have. Yeah, which yeah. Which is brilliant. I mean, it is, it is. But I want it to be performed by 65-year-old, 70-year-olds in conservative clubs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> because... In this country, the problem is not with the youth. No, but we're just hurrying. They've got it sorted. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Um, we've got time for just one more question before we have to stop. Or just maybe two if they're quick. This is not a question. I really want to pay a huge compliment to your parents. Um, I was stewarding at one of your events a few years ago, and I was privileged to be having a uh, look after them a little bit. And I just want to say... What a wonderful gift they gave to you to instill in you that, you know, uh, that gift of getting deep into the heart of people's hearts mm. and the compassion and the empathy that you express um, in your poetry, in your books. I think is, it's a beautiful thing. Oh, thank, thank you. you. I'll pass yeah. it on to them. I'll pass it on to them. With, um... Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask, why do you sometimes write in poetry and sometimes in prose. What makes you choose which one you write in? Yeah, yeah. Other than somebody commissioning you. Well, no. 
No, and that's a really, really good point. It's a very good point because, you know, something like the Dust Dives and my early poems, I was writing with no idea that anyone was ever going to see them. And I think quite a lot of writers will say this. You know, it's a huge privilege now that I might have an editor who wants to publish something. As you've heard, people still say no a lot. But it's a huge privilege. But, it, it, but it's certainly a blessing that comes with a big dose of the curse as well because... Um, Projects, ideas come your way, which is lovely. But I think you have to stop yourself now and then and go, well, hold on. What's the one thing? If I've got one more thing left to write, what's the one thing I want to say? What, what's really important? Um, and that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. We talked about having children, and one of the consequences of having children is that I have started writing individual lyric poems again. And one of the reasons I, I write you know, poems is because those really are for me, you know, they're not for, they come under, I feel, the least kind of pressure of influence from elsewhere. And so, you know, if I could only write one thing for the rest of my life, it, it, it would be poems, it would be poetry. Partly because I still think it's the hardest thing to do as well. Um, but the reason I do it uh, uh, personally is that the dovetailing of these different forms sort of, you know, keeps writing interesting for me. I think a lot of things are most interesting when you're quite far down the learning curve, when you're finding out how these different engines of storytelling you know, work. Um, and they have their different satisfactions. So you're writing a novel or writing poems on your own is a wonderful autonomy. Um, but it can be quite lonely, <laughs> sitting there rocking at the desk for thousands <laughs> of hours of silence. And at the end of that process, to go into something that is a collaboration, where you sit and you talk to 60, 70 people, and then you work with a director and you work with actors, is actually really lovely to be part of a creative process, which is fraught with risk because it can therefore fall apart at any point. Um, and because that also comes with compromise and frustration, at the end of that process, I'm normally ready to go back to that quieter space you know, that um, Ali Smith was talking about. So it's kind of more about my personality, but also uh, different stories now or different subjects seem to call towards you know, different forms. Um, and with this form, I mean, this was a, a more conscious exploration of what could be done with it. And I was saying, I think that along with Pink Mist, you know, these three books are probably, you know, that's probably it now. I've kind of had my experimentation. I've enjoyed that, and now I'm ready to write in a different way. But um, it wasn't anything that I ever planned. It was how I seemed to enjoy my writing life. I've had countless people tell me it's not what I should do. I've had some people say, well, especially in Britain, people like to know who they're reading. Yeah. <laughs> are you a novelist? Are you a poet? Are you a playwright? You know. um, but I can't seem to do that. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Shall we have some, hear some more? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Um, well, thank you uh, uh, for your questions. Um, I'm going to read a few extracts from the NHS book um, to provide all people... Um, I've spoken a bit about that structure uh, and about my anxieties about how to tell this story um, of an idea. Um, and it's interesting that we haven't actually mentioned someone else in this conversation because all of these are plays for voices. And there was another short Welsh poet who you might have heard of who wrote quite a well-known play for voices called Undermilk Wood. Um, and it's interesting because I didn't think about that until I was towards the end of the Green Hollow, I thought, oh, of course, this has always been going on. Um, but for, to provide all people, a bit like the Green Hollow, I wanted to go back further than the birth of the NHS. I wanted to really drill right back to the whole idea 
of strangers caring for each other. And I wanted to have people who could have a more omniscient view. So although we're meeting all these people who work in the NHS now, I wanted people to be able to tell that historical story. And I did, I borrowed, or I didn't, uh, T.S. Eliot say, good writers borrow, uh, great writers steal. <laughs> um, but I borrowed from Under Milkwood. I, I wanted a first and a second voice. And I did most of the interviews for this in um, um, my local hospital in Abergavenny, Neville Hall. And it, after a few weeks there, I realised that there were two people who went everywhere, saw everything and knew everything, but were so often unseen. And it was the porters and it was the cleaners. So the first and second voice of this are a porter and a cleaner. The porter is called Howell, the cleaner is called um, Yvonne. And it's them who sort of narrate us through the book. And I'm going to, again, as Thomas would have said, I'm going to begin at the beginning. Um, this opens with Howell, the porter, at dawn. He's on a, um, a third floor window uh, watching the dawn. And it opens with the voice of Howell and then goes into the voice of um, Yvonne. Uh, and in the film, Howell is played by uh, Michael Sheen and Yvonne is played by Eve Miles. So if this gets tedious at any point, just imagine them <laughs> and it'll get so much better. Here's the thing. How exactly would you say does an idea begin? Where does it all start? In one woman's brain, one man's heart? That doesn't seem likely, does it? I mean, all of us are fueled by the thoughts of others, what we've read, gleaned or seen. I mean, take all this. Healthcare, medicine, it didn't just rise from nowhere, did it? Someone, somewhere, I always think, back across the millennia, must have been the first to lay a hand on the wound of a stranger. In a cave, maybe, with ice at its mouth, a fire beside, or perhaps later, in a hut or a shelter, Wherever, whenever it was, someone must have been the first to offer comfort beyond their tribe. Not because they had to or should, but because they could. Someone else again would have seen that, watched, learnt how to do the same, what staunched the blood, eased the pain, and so it must have begun within us. Not so much an idea as an offering, a caring chain of practice and knowledge, a refusal as a species, to just lie down and take it, but rather, through attention, intelligence, care, foster a belief in our agency in life. Our ability to pit our empathy and wit against sickness, disease and death, the trials of the body and the brain, to say when our health goes south, no, not this. Ever since then, I'd say all of us who work in medicine, we're all, however tangential, descendants, aren't we, of that offering, that first intimate action. Here in Wales, by all accounts, we started early, around 1000 BC, before Hippocrates' mind. That's when Medeginiaeth, or medicine, literally the language of doctors, was first recorded as a rural art and practiced by the Cymro before they had much of anything else, cities, sovereignty. By 430 BC, it lay even closer to the civic heart, protected and encouraged as one of three civil arts. It was, fair dues, but what were the other two? Navigation, that was one, and commerce, the other. Oh yeah, right from the start, money and medicine were close, like brothers. Just look at the laws of Howell Var in what? 930 AD, there it is in black and white, the offices of the court physician. But what else did those laws enshrine? That's right his fees. 
She's right, of course. There's no denying the ideas that make us meeting us two conjoined get all wrapped up in each other until to imagine them apart, pulled asunder, well, would be more vision than thought. So how might you do it? Where would you begin to unwrap the money from the medicine, make individual care a communal concern? How might you surgically remove financial transaction from the consulting room? Make treatments free at the point of care, available to all, no matter who they are. Would it even be possible? Good questions all. But before you can solve them, you need someone to ask them. And that, I'd argue, is when sometimes one person can be the difference. Not to have the idea as such, but yes, to change its direction. Maybe, who knows, even where it lands, the final destination. Someone who doesn't just see the vision, but who can raise it too beyond the orbit of the eye, towards the doing of the hand and the believing of the brain. It can happen. I mean, look at Churchill during the war. Everyone knew what had to be done, but to get us there, that took a certain sort of man. Someone who could imagine the journey and in that imagining make it happen, which he did. But after war comes peace, a very different proposition. And harder too, perhaps, to win your victories, not on the field of battle, but in the day-to-day -day lives of your people. And I'll uh, finish now with um, an extract which sort of comes towards the end of the birth of the NHS. So it's uh, July 1948, and the NHS Act, amazingly, comes into being overnight. Everyone was advising um, Naren Bevan that it should be phased in over years, but he understood as a narrative, as a communal story, that it had to be immediate. At the stroke of midnight, there would be an equality of healthcare across the country. Um, and so Yvonne starts by telling the end of that story. She mentions the BMA, the uh, British Medical Association, who, as I'm sure you know, fought the idea of the um, NHS, backed by a lot of the media for a long time. Um, and then we move into the individual stories that I mentioned. So we then hear from Sean, who's a nurse in the uh, special care baby unit, and then from Gwyn, who's a father of uh, one of those babies called Cyril. So um, Yvonne, at the start. Together with more minor concessions, Bevan's tactics worked. And by that May, the BMA had advised the profession to work with the service coming into being. Somehow, he'd done it. Against a weight of sceptical opposition, including the Tories voting 22 times against the Act, in a couple of years he'd brought about a drastic shift in the country's cultural position. Healthcare free at the point of delivery would, in a matter of months, become a right, an expectation, so much more then than just a political victory. No. All this, it was about more than that. As Bevan himself said on the eve of the act, we now, he told the crowd, speaking at a rally in Manchester, have the moral leadership of the world. Moral, again. This was always, you see, for Bevan about one thing, poverty and the shadow it brings. And our ability as a species to work together, if we want to, to make that shadow just a little bit lighter. It is hard for the parents, 
I mean, of course it is. I mean, they're stressed as hell, their babies come early or with complications, so more vulnerable probably than at any other time in its life. So yes, of course, they want to be close to them, giving the care, but lots of time they can't. That has to be us. I'll be honest. Just after I started, I almost gave up. It was too stressful, the long shifts, then when we lost one. You can't just leave that sort of thing at the door. But my family, they told me to stick at it, and I'm glad they did, because I love my job. I do. Still stressful, of course. I mean, look at this. So much new life in one room, and some of it hanging by just a thread, too. And not just the babies, but the parents, the families. All in our hands. It's worth it, though. I mean, sometimes I think in here, this place, it's the best embodiment of the NHS. These babies, they're from every background. Well-to-do, the valleys, poor, well-off, all got different lives ahead of them too. And yeah, the playing fields will get unlevel all too soon. By the age of three, for many, their life will be set, and mostly by money. But in here, see, they all get the same care, regardless who they are. And that, that really matters to me. When I saw her next, she was in one of the cots in the special care unit, her body covered in tubes, with one up her nose, another in her hand, a mask on her face. <laughs> there at her head, though, already on a label with a cartoon of Alice in Wonderland, was her name, Cyril. Which is when it came clear, yes, the system had her, but it was holding her too as an individual, a person newly through the looking glass into this world of us. And not only that, but here she was at that moment, along with my wife being stitched two floors below, the most precious things in my life, and yet not once, despite that value, had anyone mentioned money or payment. And for that too, I felt grateful. Not because I wouldn't have paid it, of course I would, but that's the point, others couldn't. And even if they could, it would be so easy to exploit, wouldn't it? Health, love. But there, in the NHS, no one does. And that, I'd say, more than anything else, speaks well of us. Thank you very much, Dr. Wonderful, thank you. That's a gorgeous reading.